Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. My first orchid, my sister's gift, led me to worlds of kindness and beauty. By Daphne Keller. And this is from Green Prince, Winter 2022-2023 edition. The last time I hosted the family Thanksgiving, my sister Sonia brought me a moth orchid. It was nothing special, although it was pretty and a bit of a novelty in those days before orchids took over the floral department of every grocery store in America. I can imagine my sister grumbling to her husband in the car. I completely forgot a hostess present. What store is open? Aha, there's a Trader Joe's. Pull in, they must have something, anything. This orchid gift joined the mob of houseplants on my windowsills. With the jade plants and the Christmas cacti and the jasmines and the creeping figs, I schlepped the orchid out to the patio every May. There it would sit through the summer, in the shade of a hideous old maple. Slugs chewed its leaves. Squirrels knocked over its pot. I repotted it in compost because I stubbornly refused to believe that anything could grow in that weird orchid bark. Back indoors it came every October, and over time the orchid's nice flowers, creamy white with a magenta lip, would open along the corkscrew stalk that I never bothered to stake. Eventually, three more moth orchids joined it. But this was strictly the limit, I told myself. One came from the florist's Need TLC table, out of bloom and marked simply white with masking tape on the side of the pot. Five dollars was the right price for me. It turned out to have huge and lovely white flowers. It was a couple of years before I got to see them, though. It really seems like a stupid evolutionary strategy for a plant to have such fragile bloom stalks. I mean, I barely touched it, and look what happened. I had been ignoring the orchids as usual during the terrible summer when my sister died. So when the plant Sonia gave me bloomed unexpectedly just a few days after her death, it felt like a powerful message. My mind was so full of Sonia, full of the awful images of her death, and that one little flower was reassurance that her spirit still hovered around her family. While her orchid bloomed, it felt as if a part of her were still here, keeping an eye on things. Where else would she be but in the garden, where she had strolled so many times, and being the roses admiring the hummingbirds and cursing the groundhogs? She had to go out to the garden 
because, of course, she wasn't allowed to smoke in the house. And she had to smoke. Fuming, she called it. I must go outside and fume, she declared. This year, when it was time for Sonia's orchid to come indoors, it was given a position of prominence. I set up a humidifier. I watched the succeeding buds open with rapt attention. I observed the growth of aerial roots. Every day I admired the flowers. Through the long, dreary fall they bloomed, and into the cold winter. After New Year's, I checked out a few books on orchids from the library. I read the books from cover to cover, and then began to worry about all the things I had been doing wrong. What kind of an idiot would pot an orchid in compost, dug from a weed-infested compost heap? How could I possibly find out how many foot candles of light my plants were getting? What made the holes in the leaves? Why had I never disinfected the old clay pots? I also learned that a moth orchid was more properly called a Phalaenopsis, and that there are many, many other kinds of orchids, most of which are gorgeous and eminently desirable. There were Catalias, which are described as the traditional corsage orchids, although I can't remember anything so glamorous from my low-rent prom-going days. There were Oncidiums, with tall sprays of flowers in bright, bold colors. There were orchids that looked like bees, or spiders, or even monkey faces. Slowly, what started as a new fixation on the orchids I had turned into an obsession with the ones I did not have. I remember visiting Longwood Gardens with Sonia, I remember her in the orchid room, in the conservatory, lost in the reds and yellows and pinks. The humid air, full of exotic scents. She was an avid amateur photographer, and although Longwood has many beauties, it was their tropical plants that appealed most to her. The orchids, and the bougainvillea, and the tall, vast palms. How I wish now that I could talk to Sonia about the many orchids that I suddenly just had to have. Early in February, I visited a nursery where I thought I remembered seeing some orchid plants, beyond the usual ones. The parking lot seemed unusually full. Throngs of people were milling around inside the greenhouse. Happy with a pale blue dendrobium hybrid I had selected, I asked a fellow shopper, Why such a crowd? Is something special happening? Oh, she kindly said, Don't you realize there's an orchid show today? Didn't you see the tables full of orchids for sale? An actual orchid show? And a sale? I had stumbled 
in complete and total ignorance into an orchid shopper's paradise. I felt like fortune was smiling upon me. Most of these plants were a mystery to me, though. Many had lovely flowers, interesting structures called pseudobulbs, and strappy leaves. I asked questions, and people helped me. I learned about the local orchid society. I looked at gorgeous display tables. I assured growers that I was just a beginner, and they said, Here, this will grow for you. I came home with two little oncidiums and a baby catelia that has given me some trouble. The blue dendrobium would have to wait. Weeks later, when I went back to the nursery, the dendrobium was still there, neglected on the back table. It seemed like we were meant to be together, and it has since become a good plant friend. The following weekend, close to Valentine's Day, my husband took me to visit a nursery that claimed to carry orchids for the enthusiast. I wasn't sure how much enthusiasm it took to become an actual enthusiast, but I felt like I was rapidly reaching that point, especially when I was disappointed that they only had Phalaenopsis orchids. Some were even dyed a peacock blue not found in nature, except, of course, on peacocks. While I browsed unhappily through the nursery, my husband got to work on his phone and found the poetic but not very extensive website of an orchid nursery just 20 minutes away. Off we went, through the industrial back streets of town, past countless strip malls, and finally into a quiet residential neighborhood. This can't be it, we thought. We must have gone wrong. But suddenly a ratty wooden sign loomed on the right, and we turned down a long drive that seemed to lead to a private house and a garage. A shaggy black dog sat in front of the garage, and when we got out of the car, she struggled to her feet and came towards us slowly, barking. We hesitated, a little nervous. When she reached us, she sat down on my husband's feet and looked up at him as though he were Odysseus, returning from the Trojan War. This was Trixie, the greenhouse dog, and she led us into the garage. I came home from this new-to-me nursery, not only with lovely orchids, but also with thoughtful and generous advice. Needless to say, this was not my last visit. It wasn't long before I went to my first meeting of the Orchid Society. The meeting featured a novice's table, where an expert sat and answered questions, a lecture on orchid culture, and a show table groaning with beautiful flowers. There must have been a hundred people attending, eating cake and drinking coffee and standing around actually talking about orchids. Someone gave me a little division of 
Epidendrum radicans, and instructions on how to grow it. I potted it up and set it near Sonia's orchid, now in its seventh month of bloom. Throughout the spring, lots of orchids joined the gang of plants on my windowsill. There is Brassavola nodosa, which is supposed to smell wonderful, but has no scent at all, as far as I can tell. There is a purple zygopetalum hybrid, which does indeed smell great. There are some Miltoniopsis, which look like pansies with trust funds. There are some baby dendrobiums rooting in a little pot of moss. There is an out-of-bloom Rhinco stylus from the sale table at a nursery, hanging in a teak basket that makes it look as though I know what I'm doing. I repotted orchids into more or less the right potting mix, fertilized them more or less as I should have, and moved them outdoors into more or less the right light. At my third Orchid Society meeting, I became a member. In celebration, a stranger gave me his winning raffle ticket so I could choose a plant from the prize table. In May, when the last faded blossom finally fell off of Sonia's old Phalaenopsis orchid, I was able to see it go without too much sorrow. Because I was so grateful for the worlds of kindness and beauty, it had shown me at a time when I really needed it. Scientists know how the world's deadliest mushroom is spreading across the U.S. by Joshua Hawkins. And this is from BGR.com. The world's deadliest mushroom has been spreading across the United States faster than expected. The death cap mushroom, which is more formally called Amanita phylloides, is extremely toxic to humans. The species originated in Europe, but it has quickly been finding a new home all across the U.S. Up until now, scientists were baffled at how quickly the world's deadliest mushroom was setting up shop. However, new insights into the death cap have shown just how it gets its roots down so quickly. According to a study from researchers at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, the death cap mushroom can produce spores using the chromosomes of a single individual. That means the world's deadliest mushroom doesn't need a mate in order to reproduce. Different types of mushrooms should always be approached carefully, especially as death caps continue to spread across the U.S. As such, it only takes one of these mushrooms setting up shop to quickly start spreading around as much as possible. This new discovery is based on the genomes of 86 samples of the world's deadliest mushrooms, all of which were collected in California since 1993 and parts of Europe since 1978. Other specimens collected in 2014 showed that 
two different spots contain the same material, which the scientists say makes them the same individual mushroom. These asexual spores are formed in the world's deadliest mushroom when it replicates its own chromosomes in two distinctly identical packages. From there, the death caps continue to replicate until they manage to find another death cap to mate with. From there, some of the death caps offspring mate, while others don't, thus causing a repeating pattern in the population of the world's deadliest mushrooms. Because of their quick spread across the U.S., scientists recommend keeping a close eye on whether death caps are in your area before you go hunting for mushrooms of any kind. That way, you know exactly what you're getting into when you gather mushrooms of any kind. Breaking Ground Deliberations of Spring Brought on by the noise of a rototiller by Pat Stone. And this is from Green Prince Collector's Edition, Spring 1990. Warm day, dry soil, early spring. It's groundbreaking day in the garden. I go out to negotiate with old Dobbin, my middle-aged rototiller. She's getting a bit stiff in the joints and cranky at times. But if you talk gently to her and coax her choke just right, she'll start up eventually and put in a few hours of work. Good work, too. Like a weaver at the loom, I work my way across and back over my plot, watching the pattern of prepared earth emerge line by line. As my body starts to sweat, my soul begins to swell with the thick smell of turned soil, with the tussle of cool air against warm sun, with the hope of new life in the ground. This rich mixture of feelings, a perfect mood of tranquil excitement, is broken only on one plane, noise. There's nothing exulting about rototiller roar in your ears. Like most of us in this mechanical age, I've learned to largely tune out such aural messages and concentrate on other sensual blessings of early season gardening. Occasionally, though, that never-ending wave of sound makes me envy the gardeners who quietly spade their soil or the few farmers left who pop open their sod with the slicing of a horse-pulled plow. True, not enough envy to make me actually work up my whole garden by hand. I'm too lazy or selfish with my time, I guess. I keep tilling parallel lines, joyful, and intent on the ribbon on ribbon of soft, dark earth. But every once in a while, the noise intrudes and reminds me that, let's be honest, I'm chainsawing the soil, running a two-wheeled Cuisinart through sleeping brown earth.
But, I quickly reason, all gardeners assault the soil. The hand-tool digger whacks big claws into little ones with a garden fork. The horse plow throws big rolls of earth, turtle-like, onto their backs. I wrestle the tiller through a tight 180-degree turn, flinging myself around in a half-circle and start down the next row. My thoughts take a new turn, too. Gardening is not a natural activity. Gather wild nuts and berries. Forage feral fruits of the earth if you want to be Joe back to nature. But don't tell me that osterizing the earth into brown marbles, yanking out every plant that wants to sprout in the soil, and then inserting the foliage you chose where you chose is a natural activity. The machine and I sputter to a halt. I gaze over the plot, envisaging its future, and my spring-inebriated self cries, It is too a natural activity. Soon these chocolate rows of earth will nurture the births of peas and flowers, little seedlings that, like tiny-fingered infants, tug cords of protectiveness from my heart. Soon transplants, spoiled by the soft life of their indoor maternity ward, will look to this plot I prepared for succor, for home. Soon the sodden brown soil will turn green with life, a green flecked with yellow, blue, red, orange, pink, white. Bees, toads, and butterflies will join the increasing revel in its bounds. I check the tiller. Relief. Luckily, all it needs is gas. I refuel so again I can switch back down my garden road. First, though, I kneel down, pick up the gas cap, and palm some of the prepared earth. It's dark, rich, loose. Five years ago, when I started this garden, it was pale, lean, slick. Cover crops and compost, fertilizer and thyme, have turned this clay into loam. I, human, have intervened, but my efforts have steered this garden's life, made it better. Earth in hand, mind on soil, the relationship becomes clear. Gardening is an interface, a connecting portal. I tell the life I sow what I want it to do. It replies by what it does and doesn't. I listen to those answers, devise a response, and try again. With this dialogue, I delve into the language of another species, nay, another phylum, trying to translate to serve it better, so it can better serve me. The broader lessons of gardening aren't the same as those learned from wilderness, maxims about the need for untrampled nature. They are teachings in communication, interdependence, and relationship, human with earth. They are a 
continuing education course in getting better at getting along, finding a way to fit on this planet, one where people as well as flowers belong. I set down my handful of soil, recrank the engine, and once again head the tines down the row, grateful for my garden, for my tiller, for this exhilarating day. And, noise and all, for another chance to break spring ground. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.